Maybe put an arm on her. Actually, don't. She probably just wants you to leave her alone. <laughs> like, nobody talk to Tracy for the next 24 hours. She'll be gold. All right? Now, Vacation Bible School is going to be awesome and exhausting, right? Those of you who are working this year or you worked in years past, if you do it right, VBS is just going to wear you out. But there's also this crazy thing about it that it's, God just kind of uses it, in, uses it in a special way, right? Um, it's this dedicated week where we get to, to just kind of be silly and point people to Jesus, and I don't know about you, but I have a personality that really gets into that. Um, maybe you're like me. Maybe you're not. Uh, maybe you're on the fringe going, why do you go to all this kind of effort? Or why do you, uh, you know, is, is the silly moment even right? Well, the question we're always going to come back to is this. Does the silly moment, every once in a while, help us make disciples of Jesus out of little hearts and minds? And if the answer to that is yes, oh, get out of my way. We're going to be silly, Right? Yeah, and so uh, this is a dedicated week where we get to hang out, have some fun, point some kids to Jesus. And so what I want to do this morning is just take a, a minute to, to look at our theme verse for the week. So join me in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we're going to have the text up on the screen behind me in a little bit. We also have some uh, paperback Bibles in the little trays underneath the seats. Uh, we value God's Word here. We believe that it has the ability to convict of sin and draw people to repentance. We believe that it's the primary means by which God makes himself known to his creation. We also believe that, it, that it's effectual and does what God intends for it to do. And so uh, not only do we have Bibles for you to, to use now, but listen, if you don't have a Bible, like you don't own one outside of this place, man, take that one home. It's valuable to us for you to start reading it. We believe that God will do big things with it, and it definitely is better used at your place than it is on a shelf or underneath the, the seat all week, right? And so if you don't have one outside of this place, take that one home. Now, if you do have a Bible, don't be a jerk and take ours. But just take that. It's, it's great. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians is a letter uh, that was written by the Apostle Paul to the ancient city of Colossae. All right? Colossae uh, is in what, or what used to be Colossae. There's nothing left there. There's not even ruins. It's just like a place. All right? But ancient Colossae was in what was, at the time, uh, what the Romans called Asia, or now modern-day Turkey. You may have also referred to it as Asia Minor. But it's kind of central, modern-day Turkey. All right? And we think that Paul wrote the letter about the same time that he wrote the book of Ephesians, all right? another letter that he wrote. Uh, and it's because they're kind of in the same place. He sent them with the same messenger and all those kinds of things. Uh, the church at Colossae um, was, was a place that Paul never went to. It was a place that got, that got started, planted, we would say, uh, because of what Paul was doing over in Ephesus. So we've been uh, looking at the, the letter to the Ephesians in a big long-form series in here, and we've been learning that, that Paul started the church at Ephesus while he was in Ephesus. All right? uh, and so Acts, Acts 19 kind of spells out that story if you're interested in reading about it later. Uh, but in Acts 19, it tells us that when Paul was in Ephesus, and he was there for like two or three years, that the gospel spread, quote, throughout all of Asia. And it's the Roman way of using the word Asia, not the, the modern way. So all of Turkey, right? And so probably what happened is Paul was making such an impact in Ephesus that people in Colossae came and heard him and then took the gospel back there. All right? And this church got started. And if you know the story of Ephesians, Paul is run out of town because a riot starts and he goes off on some other stuff. God sends him to some other places, but he writes a letter back while under house arrest in Rome, writes a letter back to the Ephesian church, and at the same time writes a letter back to the Colossian church. What had happened was that the pastor of the Colossian church, a guy named Epaphras, 
And I say Epaphras. There's really good scholarship to prove that his name is actually pronounced Epaphras, but I just can't do that to the kid. That's right? <laughs> probably got beat up in school if he went by Epaphras. So I'm going to go with Epaphras. All right? So Epaphras goes to Paul while he's in Rome. He visits him in house arrest and explains to him a bunch of problems that they're having in the church. And all those problems kind of central around theological issues. Uh, they all kind of central around, do they really believe and trust that Jesus is big enough and strong enough to accomplish everything that he's supposed to accomplish? Or do they need to supplement? Do they need to add things to the gospel so that they can make themselves pleasing to God. And things like, uh, do they, I mean, if you, if you really want God to be okay with you, if you really want to be on his good side, I mean, Jesus is nice and all, but why don't we also do the Jewish dietary laws? Why don't we also, like, pray to this angel as a mediator instead of going straight to Jesus because he's really busy and stuff. And so that's what was creeping up in the Colossian church. And Paul... Paul gets a little ornery about that. Ornery. Do you know that word? It's a good Texas word. Ornery. It, it got him in the jib. <laughs> no? He was angry. <laughs> Is that the New Hampshire way of saying it? All right. Paul got a little fresh. All right. So Paul writes a letter back to the Colossian church to set some things straight, we'll say. All right, and so in Colossians 1, let's pick it up in verse 15. He, that's Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. All right, so in answer to Paul's question, is Jesus enough, what does Paul say? <laughs> you bet he's enough. Yeah, he's enough. In fact, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, he says. All right? So Jesus is a perfect representation of the Father, is what Paul says. And that he is preeminent or first over all things. In other words, Paul says here that there is not a single thing in creation that gets to tell Jesus that he's wrong. I mean, think about that for a second. Like, we could go hypothetical or we can go literal. Jesus once said that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Is there an authority around that gets to go? Actually, Jesus, you're not seeing things correctly. Let me offer you a better way of seeing There's no authority higher than Jesus. No one gets to say, hey, Jesus, you don't quite understand this issue. Let me educate you. Like when we say it like that, people go, oh, right? So Paul says, he is first among all creation, but he's not done yet. I mean, people may try to be a competing authority, but they don't really have any ground to stand on, do they? Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So if you read nothing but verse 15, you're left in kind of an awkward place, right? So if all you have is verse 15, you can legitimately say just from the text that all of those things about Jesus being first can be true 
of the first place created thing. If Jesus is simply in charge of the rest of creation as creation, you can say verse 15. But Paul doesn't leave that door open, does he? What does he say? He says, For by him all things were created. Jesus is not simply first among creation. He's creator himself. Right? You can't be both created and creator of all things. Paul here shows that Jesus is not simply first place among all things, but owner of all things. Because he is the architect of all things. That he, by default, because of his status as creator, all things actually belong to him. All things belong to him, visible and invisible, material and immaterial. Paul even says that even thrones and dominions and other authorities ultimately belong to him. That's a bold claim, right? That Jesus can stand there and say, you do you, but that's really mine. Like if I did that, how would that end? Poorly, right? It would go very poorly, but Jesus gets to say that, right? Not only does Jesus own all things, he created them by default, but all things... Look at the end of verse 16 again. All things were created through him, and what's those last two words? For him. So not only did Jesus, does Jesus own all things because he created it, and that's how that works, right? But he owns all things because he created them for his express purposes. His express purposes. You may be thinking, like, I got some ideas about what to do with some things around here. Do you actually, have, do you actually own those things? See, so you get yourself some all things, and then you can make the rules, right? But Jesus actually has all the all things. Is that weird? That's weird. All right. Look at verse 17. Two verses into this paragraph, we're dealing with some massive stuff, but Paul is about to step on the gas pedal. Verse 17, And he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things, what? Jesus is not only the owner of all things, he's also the operator of all things. That every molecule in existence not only belongs to him, but is actually held together by him. Now, there's a couple of different ways of looking at that. Uh, we can take that negative, we can take that positive. The negative way would be to, to ask the question, what happens if he lets go? I mean, isn't that kind of terrifying? I mean, if he really is holding all things together, what happens if he just gets mad and goes home? That's it, I'm out. I don't know about you, but occasionally I'm guilty of some stuff where I think maybe he ought to just take a break and go home. Right? Is that true of your own heart? What happens if he just, let's go? That question assumes something about his character, though, doesn't it? He's a God that will. 
Not only is there a negative way of looking at it, but there's also a positive way of looking at it. The, the positive way of looking at that claim is to ask, is there anyone or anything you would rather have it in their hands? Right? Is there a competing authority or power that you trust more to hold it all together than him? Systems fail all the time, right? There's a reason it's hot in here, because the air conditioner isn't working. Systems fail. People holding systems together fail. Listen, any system I build is going to fail. Maybe you're the engineering type and you've got all the little kinks worked out. How are you doing on that perpetual motion machine? Systems fail, but there is someone who does not fail. And Paul just explicitly says he holds all things in his hand. That everything exists for his purposes and within the scope of his care. A little more than um, 100 years ago now, a Dutch theologian by the name of Abraham Kuyper famously once said, there's not a square inch in the whole creation of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, over all, does not cry, mine. Mine. We talked last week about how God's plan is from before the foundation of the world and therefore unthwartable, regardless of how badly I may mess it up. That God's can't, plan can't be undone by my ineptitude. Or me warring against him because he's a lot bigger than me? Paul here unpacks the same theme to the Colossian church, doesn't he? We said he wrote the letter at the same time, right? It's like he's not working very hard. When he writes to the Ephesians, he unpacks the bigness and the grandness and the control of God to remind them that God is bigger and uh, that God and Artemis are not equal, right? And when he writes to the Colossian church, it's to remind them that Jesus doesn't need yours or anyone else's help to accomplish his purposes. You don't need to go through an angel to get to him. He's big enough. He can handle it. You don't need to add things to the law. His sacrifice is sufficient because he was perfectly good. Right? The one who is creator and sustainer of all things, the one who is actively holding all things together, is working out his plan from beginning to end. So our theme for VBS this year is Galactic Starveyors. The entire point is to show a bunch of little kids that are God not only holds all the stars in their place and knows each one of them by name, but he also moves them from place to place and knows their name. And a God who's big enough to do both is a God who's big enough to be trusted, is he not? A God who is big enough to do both of those things is a God who is worthy of our love and our following. Look at verse 18. Not only is God working and saving, not only is he eternal, but he's also personal and knowable. Look at verse 18. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's just a big word that means first. 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach 
before him. Our God is infinitely big and he is infinitely good. He has done what is necessary to reconcile us to himself and he is trustworthy to finish everything he has started or promised to finish. And that leads us to an amazing question this morning. How do we respond to this revelation? Let me say it another way. How do we respond to God's word this morning? If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, our response this morning is to press into a God who is eternal and eternally working. He's not making this up as he goes. His plan is from before the foundation of the world, and that's good news because he's a God who is worthy of our trust. He's a God who will finish everything he started. Bank on it. We press into this God and we trust in his bigness and we trust in his goodness. And as he sends us here or calls us to do this, we have the confidence that he's going to accomplish his purposes through us, right? When a God who is infinitely over all and holding all things in his hands calls you to do something, do you really have to worry about how it turns out? Like diligence, go, go do your job well. But if he says, go here, go there, speak this, speak that, the consequences are up to him, right? So you go do. We press into this God this morning. Follower of Jesus, another thing you can do is pray for our VBS this week. Our hope and our prayer is to try our best to put into words and put into pictures just how big and just how lovely and just how good our God is. That's a task that's bigger than us. That's a task that, that the God of the universe has to reveal to little hearts and minds. Pray for them. Pray for our, our leaders this week. If you got some time on your hands, come help. What about the person who's not a follower of Jesus? How do you respond? Your response this morning is to meet him. We want to give you an opportunity to do that. You do that by repenting of sin and calling on him as Lord. Lord is, a, is an older word that we don't use much in our culture. It just simply means boss. He's in charge. If Colossians 1 is true, he is Lord whether we realize it or not. So calling Jesus Lord is really about lining up your heart to finally understand what's always been true. If you're here and you don't know Jesus this morning, we want to give you an opportunity to respond. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. It's, it's an opportunity for all of us to do business with a God without distraction. Because if we just let you go, you'd, you'd get off into a thousand other things. So press in. Repent of sin. Call on him as Lord. Let's pray. God, you are good to us. Thank you for being a God who is over all and through all and in all. God, thank you for being a God who loves us with a great love, who does what is necessary to reconcile us to yourself. A God who is not overwhelmed by or dumbfounded by the moves and shifts and changes in this world, but you are holding all things together and you will bring them about to your desired end. May we trust you well. May we trust that you're a God who is just as good as you are big. 
And so when we fail to trust, would you draw us close? For those in here who don't know you this morning, would you make yourself known? You are such a big and good God. I am convinced that when you reveal yourself to us, we are forever changed. Well, it's hard not to love you. God, as you continue to prepare us for a silly week pointing to your bigness, would you take the feeble efforts of this church, of myself, and you make them something we can never do on our own? So your name. Let's stand and sing.